Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Arin. And this is Sahita. And you're listening to TikTok. We have a special guest, someone I've grown up with for most of my life. And of course, he has to be our first yeah, guest, right? Our very first guest. Yeah, so today we're actually going to talk about um, utilizing privilege as a third culture law student. And as you all know, we're not the law student nope, here. You're not. So let's introduce my friend, Marcel. Hey, Marcel. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. It's nice no to be here. Worries. Thanks for wanting to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. No worries. So yes, tell the viewers or the listeners a little bit more about yourself. Why did you decide to take law or how was your journey like? Of course. So just like Suita and Arin, um, as a background of myself, I am Indonesian, but spent most of my life growing up in Singapore. After that, uh, following national service, I went to the UK to study a law, an international law degree at the University of Birmingham. During this time, I've taken an interest in sort of the legal elements of migration and the movement of people between states more generally. So thanks for having me on this episode. I was listening back to our old episodes and I think that we kind of fell short in acknowledging our privilege and how important it is to utilize the resources we have and the kind of privilege in general that we have, right? Yeah, and, and also um, we, we wanted to have um, a sort of like a different take on, on our podcast. So, so because clearly the two of us can't talk much about law and like um, the privilege that, we, that uh, people like us have in bringing um, a more, in, a more um, inclusive space in law. So that's why uh, Marcel comes in, since he has a background in law. And yes. you'll be perfect to talk about that uh, to us and share uh. with the audience. Yeah. And I think we always talk about this as well. I mean, with Arin, with Marcel, we understand that migration is something that's very intersectional. So some people don't even acknowledge our movement, our cross-boundary movement as migration, right? Because yeah. ultimately, most of us, we move to other countries for school, for work, Whereas there are people who have no choice but to mm-hmm. migrate, right? And I think that's where Marcel's like studies and expertise comes in because then we actually really see systematically how that affects different people. Yeah. So Marcel, just tell us in general, what is like a law student's take on migration or your take on migration? Yeah, that's a very good question. I also think about this a lot, especially um, in the last three years when I've been studying international law. I think my take on migration. Firstly, firstly, it's very important to know that migration has been happening for as long as there's been people on earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. However, the modern discussions of it was a product of the politicization around the movement of people after World War II. Yeah. Because of the war, many people became stateless due to the breaking up of countries and also people running away from persecution. They're also known as refugees. Mm-hmm. So at that time, it was in the interest of many countries to create a legal framework that governs this development. This was done from the 1950s onwards with the Refugee Convention and the following protocols. But fast forward to more recent times and present day, countries are more pressured now to regulate movement more strictly because border control is now a very big political issue. This sort of pushback is the reason for policies such as visas, mm-hmm. international zones, etc. 
I think the whole legal context of it paints a good picture on how immigration is viewed, where the law is, and the fact that states tend to sort of ignore their obligations a bit, make it no surprise that migration and immigration can be seen negatively. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, as someone who is third culture, you know, whenever I hear like the topic of uh, migration or immigration, be it legal or quote-unquote illegal, um, I always feel like a certain type of way especially like in the current Western narrative, um, immigrants have always been, have been seen in a negative light and you know, xenophobia, xenophobia is very rampant in like Western countries. And even as someone who still feels like a foreigner in Singapore, this sentiment is very personal to me because I mean, like sure, I moved here as a migrant and my parents moved here um, as a quote-unquote quote unquote, expatriate. Um, so like we are considered a foreign talent, right? Um, but, you know, imagine if we are all not as privileged, you know, how would we be treated exactly. in Singapore then? Right. Yeah. And this, I guess this movement um, across different countries and this movement that we're a part of, as I mentioned, is intersectional and it parallels the kind of development and modernity in the past few decades, right? Mm. Um, especially with how globalization kind of shaped that. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think yeah. that's something that we would want to discuss because ultimately, if you read literature on uh, modernization in general, it is a construct that is not linear. Modernization and modernity development, it's not linear. And so that is very much reflected on many law reforms that kind of dampen that for certain groups of people. So is this necessarily a reason why you decided to take or pursue law, Marcel? Yes, that is one of the big reasons. And I can definitely agree with both of you when you guys brought up that those sort of reflections, it really hits home, actually. Yeah. Um, from, from, right. from, it's both from growing up in Singapore and then afterwards moving to the UK as well as sort of this third culture kid. Yeah. So in terms of the reason that I do want to pursue law, that is one of the main reasons, which is to understand and sort of question the narrative of traditional Western views, mm -hmm. the Western perspective um, that, I, that I've been accustomed to, and I'm sure you guys as well, through edu um, education. Um, when, when you tell people like, oh, I want to pursue something in the realm of international law, they'll be like, that's so Western-centric. Yeah. But you know, they don't understand that your approach is essentially to subvert that, right? Am I right? Yeah, that's true. So throughout the whole studies of international law, it has actually led me to look at the law from a bottom-up approach mm -hmm. where sort of diverse viewpoints act as a center of gravity of legal development. Right. So when you so, say a bottom-up approach, I'm assuming that typically it's the opposite, right? So how, how would you illustrate that to like the listeners who don't quite understand the difference in the approach? Yeah. So as a general example, we can look at religious marriage practices for, for the bottom-up approach. Mm -hmm. So for a marriage, you would want your marriage or divorce to be recognized on two fronts, the state body and also your own religious body. For yeah. Muslims, the, the UK courts address this by considering decisions from the Sharia councils, for example. It's also very similar in Singapore, uh, though there is a specific registry designated for Muslim marriages that is recognized legally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
as you can see, the, the example shows the importance of cultural factors at play that inherently shape the law, which is evidence of the bottom-up approach that I always raise awareness to, right. as opposed to the traditional viewpoint that legal development comes from powerful states and then trickle down. Your, the way you utilize your privilege is to force people around you to embrace diversity by accepting living laws, right? They're made through various cultures. And I can draw parallels to your work with my research work in, in school. So currently, I'm researching on the evaluation of impact investments streaming to Southeast Asia. So, nice. you know, in the past few, I guess, five years, when venture capital firms are expanding and rising in Southeast Asia, particularly in, in, in Indonesia, for those of you who don't know, we have so many, a lot of the unicorn companies are from Indonesia, right? Um, and a lot of companies in Indonesia are working to be unicorn startups. And so you see a lot of funding from so many countries, especially from the U.S., from Europe. And a lot of in impact investment firms or private investment firms tend to overlook regional variations when it comes to, you know, developing impact investment plans or investment processes. So it becomes a double-edged sword, right? So I think that's similar to international law. You have to come up with an approach that incorporates humility. We need to be able to listen to the kinds of issues, problems that require financial funding when it comes to impact investment or private investment, when it comes to law reforms, when it comes to international law, if you want to make it, quote-unquote, international, right? So there exactly. needs to be dismantling and there needs to be um, effort to dismantle and unpack what really is modernity, what really is international law, what really is development that encompasses these really idealistic liberal uh, views and approach and yeah. um, coming up with something systematic, right? Um, so yeah, how, how would we then link this to something closer to home, like in, for example, like in Singapore? Yeah, I think right. um, for, for something that's more closer to home, we can look at the less enforcement of the Section 377A in Singapore, which is a law that criminalizes gay sex, mm -hmm. and that follows the, uh, the annual Pink Dot movement. And I think um, in, in our annual Pink Dot movements in Singapore, we have been actively trying to um, you know, feedback to the government and pressure the government to actually um, remove the law altogether. But I mean, the, the fact that it's being less enforced, I guess, it's kind of a step in the right direction, even though it's kind of not enough. But yeah, so that that's kind of like the bottom-up approach because yeah. then, yeah, it, it's just it's basically a sign that the government is moving along with the modern times. Right. Yeah, and the problem. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I also think that on top of the pink dot movement that happens annually in mm -hmm. 2018, there was also the uh, Ready for Repeal mm -hmm. uh, petition oh, yeah. that, was, that was circulating around Singapore. So it is, as Arun said, it is still law though. Um, so in no means is there legal change yet, but yeah. the movements do show evidence of sort of the government catching up to uh, social behavior and sort of social development, mm -hmm. which you can also link back to the, to the legal element of it, um, which is the bottom-up approach. Right. So it's, it's not like the government entity or legal legal entity it's not separate from the people it seeks to serve right yeah. essentially that's yes. what it is and that is i guess how we seek to use our quote-unquote privilege being 
third culture kids, right? Yeah. Um, but do you guys, have you guys ever heard comments like, oh, you're just self-orientalizing? Um, not for me, actually, because I mean, because I, I, I um, work in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, because it's healthcare and it's science-based and, you know, as you know, um, the the international standard for healthcare is westernized because yeah. it's deemed as more scientific. I mean, mm-hmm. we can we can also argue that that's actually problematic, right? To actually mm-hmm. just view the the Western um, ideals of healthcare as the most scientific. Yeah. But so for for my case, like I can't really self orientalize orientalize. <laughs> yeah, because I mean I'm I'm just following what's. Yeah, what I study in yeah. university, which is just the Western healthcare system. Right. So yeah. I think what I think what make people say things like that. They don't necessarily use the term self-orientalized, but maybe in Indonesia it's like sobule or like to Westernize, yeah. right? Yeah. Or you're trying to fit into this Western construct. Um, the reason why people say that it's because yeah, we are operating in an environment that is predominant or essentially Western centric. Right, yeah, but it doesn't mean exactly. that we're not, you know, putting a stand or like trying to make a stand on, of our own. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, how is it like for you, Marcel? Like in international law, do you ever hear people say things like that? Yes, I do. And also, interesting that you men- mentioned even the comments in like when you go back to Indonesia, the sobule. Yeah. Even if you grew up in Singapore or something, mm-hmm. I have been getting I have been getting that a lot because I it guess, is true. Yeah. Same. <laughs> Whatever, whatever you study, like when you grow up in Singapore, uh, every time you go back to Indonesia, it you're you're sort of you're you're sort of classified as someone that's sort bullet. Yeah. And for me, it got even worse when I went to the UK. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> so when I when, every time I came back I to Indonesia, it. it was like, gimana <laughs> Every time my my parents come in and and hear me talk with 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 you, Suita, or like with my boyfriend, because like, I always speak in English mostly yeah. and then and then I, there was this one instance, instance where uh, my my dad saw me talking to you and then they were like wait are you are you talking with Sweet and I'm like yeah and he's like uh, the, uh, he, she, he was basically like speak in Indonesian <laughs> you know like why are you speaking English I mean he said it in a joking way yeah. but I'm sure he was kind of yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think um, this term self-orientalism resonates with me especially when I was in Amsterdam for exchange when I was studying. Um, and so for those of you who don't know, there's this Indonesian painter called Raden Saleh. So Raden Saleh is just one of those popular Western mm. art painters. He Some of his paintings are in the museum in Amsterdam and you can see some of them in Singapore as National well. Gallery, in National yeah. Gallery. It's really popular. Um, he was a romantic artist and he was really popular and he was accused of, you, of self-orientalizing because he understands what the Western market wanted at that time. And he understood that they fetishized um, Japanese um, men, women, artwork. Yeah, it was art a trend, forms. like Orientalist painting. Yeah. So even though it's problematic because it's not um, indicative of the real Java or the real Indonesia. Yeah. But then he realized that that was what the market wanted and he leveraged on that in order for him to kind of have a name and and Netherlands, right? So that's when the term self-orientalism was popularized because of people like him. And when I was there, actually, I felt like I felt like I was him because I knew that being yeah. there, I knew eyes were on me because not everybody looks like me, mm-hmm. right? Let's just be realistic. 
there's not a lot of brown girls. I think most of the time I was the only one um, talking about issues like feminism, talking about issues, liberal issues, issues that matter to them, right? Yeah. So essentially, I felt like I was self-orientalizing because I'm only talking about things that um, are quote-unquote liberal and in their interest. Yeah. But I think it's important to utilize that, to know that, yeah. you know, it is problematic. But what can you do about it, right? So you know that that's what the market wants when it comes to art. Use that and try to shift it to a conversation on areas that are oftentimes overlooked. Yes, so I that's agree. important when I'm talking about private investments. I can't, I can't control the fact that most of the investments coming into Indonesia are from Western countries. But what I can do is utilize that. And I think that's the same for you, right, Marcel, when it comes to international law. Exactly. It's definitely about finding that balance because same as when you were in Amsterdam, uh, over here, it's also, I also get a lot of comments of people saying like, for example, wow, you, you think the same way as I do, which is cool, which is cool. Um, but oftentimes I do have to balance that also knowing my personal identity and where I, where I came from. So it's like, it's not, it's not being, it's not being put in either one of those boxes. Right. And in my studies of international law, I think that's the reason I actively question the mainstream tradition and look at alternative ways of critiquing the law. And for me personally, it's been through um, an approach in international law called TWAIL, which is the third world approach in international law, mm-hmm. following academics that go along the same lines. Mm-hmm. Another, another conscious, uh, conscious way I have done this is by listening to an array of perspective amongst academic staff in university. So I focus on diversity as an important role in development, both legal and social. Yeah. And that's important because I do oftentimes find myself researching social legal is- issues. Yeah. And lastly, as a point of a personal re- reflection, the I think my takeaway is also recognizing the reason I view things a certain way. Right. So the realization that I do have my own biases that others will not share because it is shaped from the way I was brought up as a third culture kid. Overall, yeah, an important lesson in looking inward is having the awareness of where my point of view sort of comes from. Right. And I think it's very important for all of us when we, when we do sort of legal research or yeah, any, anything or in whatever field that we do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, a lot of it boils down to how ultimately we still feel different anywhere we go, right? We still feel yeah. a sense of whatever we're doing is defiance to either our own country or wherever we're situated at. Um, but that also, and like you said, Marcel, it's important for constant, um, to constantly look inwards and to constantly evaluate our thought processes. It's, it's a never-ending process. Yeah. And I think this is what this podcast is about as well. We have to start unpacking different kinds of biases that we've internalized knowingly or unknowingly. And that is a process that we do in our private lives, in our personal lives, and even in our careers. Um, and I exactly. think that's a very important point um, yeah. to make. Yeah, and also like I, it's, it is very difficult to change the systems that mm-hmm. are already in place in our respective fields. Like uh, as I said before, you know, for example, my field of clinical research trials in Singapore uh, very much follows the Western guidelines, uh, such as the FDA guidelines and the international European guidelines. The, yeah, and so 
because it is viewed as more um as not even more like most scientific and credible but you know as especially as we are recent undergraduates and professionals we can start in our workplace in in our universities you know and and make it like a daily practice by actively listening to the needs and concerns of the parties that your work directly affects um right. you know for my case they, yes. are, they are the patients and trial volunteers you mm -hmm. know especially if they are part of a vulnerable or or minority groups you know as sometimes their needs are more unique and oftentimes not listen to unfortunately. Yes, unfortunately yeah so you know gather feedback always educate yourselves in social issues as this would also equip you to you know practice inclusivity while doing our respective jobs in our respective fields yeah i think it's a very important point that you made right yeah i think with the i mean as we're talking about this we are at a point where the black lives matter is the talk of the town the talk yeah. of the world right um yeah. and it was just drawing back to what you said, it was really easy to point at the problems elsewhere. Yeah, overseas. Overseas. Yeah. But yeah. it's also, we have to constantly remind ourselves that as we point at um, inequality in the US, in Europe, inequality in the workplace that we're subjected to as well, we also have to do the same thing with, how, with our points of views and views in our own country. So we have to start evaluating how we, most of us are the majorities in our country, right? In our home country. Mm. How do we view the minorities in our country? How do we enable, or how do we empower them when the state does not do so? Do you get what I mean? Yeah. I think with the research, with the channeling of funds into Indonesia, I realized that a lot of the funding would benefit the majority of the country, which I understand that Indonesia in general, whether you're the majority or the minority, there are socioeconomic problems that you're subjected to. Yeah. But it, yes. even more so when you're a minority. And the, these intersectional elements, we tend to neglect and forget. And it's yeah. very difficult to be away from home and have this kind of mindset imparted in us and constantly introspect. But it is an inward journey that we have to continuously work on. Yeah. Um, and I think we do that in our own craft as well you know, indirectly or directly. There's a lot of talk about how, oh, like Indonesians abroad don't contribute to the country, but just being ourselves and having the yeah. kind of stand, for example, Marcel, having the kind of stand you have in international law for how you listen, for Adam, how you listen to patients who are not hurt. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what we want to do is to utilize our privilege, not only to help minority groups back in Indonesia, but hopefully, ideally, around the world. And wherever we are as well. Yeah, like talk about it or if you can you'll make donations you know, however big or small it really helps yeah sign petitions and you know what i really really like how social media can be super helpful in situations like this as well like when you're a law student when you're a philosophy major when you're a life sciences major and now you have social media to kind of talk about your opinions from your point of view and you do it in a very open-minded um productive manner that makes social media powerful. Yeah. I learned so much more about the West Papua movement, about the Black Lives Matter movement from social media. Yeah, and the Yemen And the problem. Yemen crisis. Yeah, the Yemen crisis. From individuals as well, from reputable um, institutions. Yeah. Um, yeah, from social media, not necessarily from traditional media as well or traditional no, publications, exactly. unfortunately. So. Yeah. And I think this parallels back to your point, Marcel, on how the bottom-up approach is very very important i think the most powerful thing that social media has done is also spark conversations between friends or family members in your household that you wouldn't previously have 
and that's that's where real change sort of starts you know, a lot of people talk about starting starting with your household or starting with your group of people social media helps that a lot and then afterwards that can expand outwards and hopefully see the sort of change that everyone wants yeah yeah it doesn't matter if you have like 200 followers if you can change one person's mindset and that person happens to operate in an industry that is so um biased to minority groups that works who yeah. cares it's it's a change yeah. yeah you know i think just talking about it it's it's definitely a good first step but i think in the following episodes we'll focus more about tangible actions that we can take or tangible actions other people have taken um and it's important it's an ongoing conversation that we're going to constantly have and it's not going to stop so thank you marcel for wanting to be a part of this yeah. conversation <laughs> it's an honor to be your uh <laughs> Honored to be your first guest. Yeah. Yep, How do yep. you feel? Are, think... you, are you still nervous? <laughs> Recording? No, no. Just don't. Yeah, don't. Don't forget to um, remember. Remember me when you have Cinta Laura on the show. I know. We'll never Cinta forget Laura. you. You're yeah. an OG. <laughs> really, you know what? I would much rather have you now than Rich Brian because apparently Rich Brian forgot about no. me. Girlfriend now. Oh, I'm so upset. Girlfriend. Yeah. I was like, hey, we haven't met yet. <laughs> Okay, he's too young for you anyway. No, I'm still <laughs> Sure. You need Rich Brian on your show. I need mean, yeah, we definitely we still have we still have to figure that out. Yeah, so still. I think, yeah, so thank you Marcel for joining us and we're definitely going to have Marcel on again. Yeah. Talking more about I guess besides law we'll have other things to talk about being third third culture yeah, Indonesian like abroad identity. Yeah, yes. that's That's a whole lot of things to unpack. Yeah, yeah. so if you Honored. have any <laughs> suggestions on, you know, what kind of topics that we can talk about or anything related to self-identity, feel free to suggest as well. We're, we're still open to new topics as well. Yep. Yeah, so <laughs> thank you everyone for listening. We hope that you stay safe, stay healthy, socially distance yourself. Yep. Um, Avoid crowds. Yes. No, it's hard to do it, but it's for your own good, for your own safety, and yes. others too. Wear masks when you go out, please. Now we sound like two meters apart in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think wearing um, masks shouldn't be a personal choice. It should be an obligation. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> that's the tea. That's the tea for today. <laughs> but yeah, so thank you, Marcel, once again. We hope everyone stays safe, and we'll see you guys in the next episode. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.